So yeah, we will start like uh, how have we been? <laughs> How's the winter but, going? Yeah, not too bad. We actually almost had a full thaw uh, a couple of days ago. So I was outside, like it was 32 degrees, but I was like, no shirt, just getting sun, <laughs> like you know, crush, crushing the Wim Hof method, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Like we also have a pretty lot of snow at the moment, so full, full on winter. <laughs> yeah, we we actually did just get hit with some some more snow too. That's good. Um, yeah, let's uh, maybe start covering a bit about um, what are you doing for like the immune system for the winter then at the moment. Like, have you changed anything in regards to like your diet or supplementation? Yeah, uh, so I definitely increased my cod liver oil consumption. Um, I think so. I think there's a lot of confusion, even um, among a lot of functional MDs on like, what's the best way to get vitamin D when you can't get it through sunlight. And I always just keep coming back to what's the most sort of natural whole food way to do it. So I think, I think supplementation Sorry, your audio is uh, cutting off at the moment. I'm not, I'm not getting any audio at the moment from you. Weird. Okay. Now it's back. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so essentially like I think in the winter, I try to do both D as a supplement, like your typical D3 supplement, but also cod liver oil to bring the vitamin A as well, because you don't just want to take vitamin D um, in, in fairly high doses. If you don't have um, vitamin A optimized K2 and magnesium, because if you think about it, um, vitamin D is going to increase, um, the absorption of calcium in your diet. And if you don't have the K2 to sort of pull it back into the bone and you don't have, um, and then fat sides, well, you don't just want to take for each other for absorption too. So, um, the more D you take, the more A you need vitamin A you need. So I think cod liver oil is a great way to sort of balance the both out. And it's a very bioavailable form of vitamin D. So when you think about D, a lot of them just come as a powder, but like the cod liver oil is it's, it's already in a fat soluble form. So I, I, it's probably a more bioavailable form as well. Right. Right. Yeah. Like it is one of the kind of richest sources of you know, vitamin D as a, from food. And uh, yeah. Right. You also get like the omega threes, healthy omega threes uh, from that as well. So kind of a good balance. What what about like you know the source of um, your cod liver? Like what is you know I, I would imagine like all most of them, almost the supplements tend to be like bad or not not like uh, yeah in the in the best form. Yeah, so I use Rosita cod liver oil. I don't have any affiliation with them, but I know their processing methods. They test their oxidation products, and it's extremely low um, oxidation products. And how they, I think it's a CO2 extraction, um, but don't quote me on that. But I know the extraction process is very light compared to a lot of other extraction processes. Mm. What What are some other good uh, vitamin D foods that you could? Uh, so, well, that's the thing. I mean, D is so lo low in almost every food, unless you're sourcing things like, um, wild salmon is a fairly decent source of vitamin D. Um, you do get some from pastured eggs, but you'd have to sort of consume a fair amount to get into the thousand milliliter, you know, thousand or 2000 IU dosing, which is why almost everybody essentially needs to be sourcing an additional quote unquote supplement of vitamin D in the winter, whether it be through an actual capsule or like something like cod liver oil. Right. And uh, egg yolks are also one of the good ones for that. Yeah, egg yolks are pretty good. What, what is like the, 
difference between vitamin D2 you get from mushrooms and, uh, you know, cod liver oil? Yeah. So, so the D3 is in animal foods and then D2, you can get like, like you said, through, if the mushrooms are actually being irradiated, I think through UV is how they actually make it. But D3 converts better to the active form than D2. It also raises your blood levels about twice as good as D2 as well. And it has less risk for toxicity as well. Um, so D, so animal form D3 is definitely better than D2. Gotcha, gotcha. And uh, I also got one question from uh, Instagram that, uh, is there like any intolerance to vitamin D supplementation uh, if you take it oral? Like if there's someone say that they get some maybe upset stomach or something from that? I don't know. I've never, I've never heard anyone get upset stomach from vitamin D. Definitely certain minerals, if you go high doses, um, can cause upset stomach. Um, I know like things like zinc, magnesium, if you overdo the, the dose on that. And it's funny too, because I was thinking before our discussion, how sort of my whole mindset on taking vitamins and minerals is, is sort of changed over the years. So I used to never think about, I always thought, well, get a good dose, right? Like, get a good dose of it. But really, I think what's better is to get a lower dose more frequently throughout the day. And that's going to not only reduce the risk of side effects, but it's going to improve the bioavailability and retention in the body. So typically I try to, like for magnesium and calcium, I, I typically consume something like this throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And so the, re- the retention and the absorption of magnesium and calcium through mineral waters compared to supplements is about 40% more if you consume a low dose over multiple times a day. Um, so let's say like seven ounces over seven times a day versus let's say twice a day consuming like 20 ounces all at once. So you get a much better absorption and retention of those minerals. Yeah, like uh, I agree. And yeah, if you have this peak spike and like a massive influx of these minerals and vitamins, then your body just automatically, you know, self-regulates itself and uh, lowers down the absorption rate and potentially increases the excretion. So yeah, you don't want to be like, um, have a big spike in anything. Exactly. And I mean, we never used to, it's always, it always comes back to like, um, like our paleolithic ancestors, right? They didn't, they weren't able to just take like a magnesium capsule or a calcium capsule and spike their blood with like 500 milligrams of, of those minerals. And so it makes sense to get a slow infusion, um, just from an evolutionary type of perspective. Yeah. Uh, like what are some other, the other, um, uh, potential harmful side effects to vitamin D supplementation? Like you mentioned that you need to get it with the other, um, minerals. Right. So um, vitamin D on its own, if you, if you start taking fairly high doses, probably in the four to five uh, IU ratio or higher um, is an increase in, in blood calcium and in a potential increase in arterial calcifications. If you don't have an adequate intake of uh, K2 and magnesium, um, because the magnesium acts also to keep calcium out of the arteries, but so does K2. So um, those are the primary issues. Also kidney stones as well, um, because of the increased absorption of calcium and the spike of calcium in the blood with high doses of D. Um, if you don't have good magnesium uh, status, that can potentially also increase the risk of kidney stones. So I don't think these risks are huge at two, two to maybe 4,000. But once you start going higher than that, um, you really got to make sure you're optimizing K2 and magnesium with the, the vitamin D. And then so many people are so deficient in vitamin A. I do fear that if you're just taking a high dose of D, you're going to tank your A levels even more as well. Hmm. Yeah. 
so if you are like taking a vitamin D supplement, then uh, it's best if it ha is you know, kind of coupled with uh, K2 or magnesium. 100%, because if you think about it, right, when you take vitamin D, it's going to activate 2000 genes to increase the transcription of tons of proteins, like let's say vitamin K dependent proteins. So now you have all these vitamin K dependent proteins that you're producing. You need way more vitamin K now to activate and carboxylate and do all its functions. So really D is sort of stressing out your body for more nutrients because it's creating so many more proteins in the body. And then you need the, the minerals as cofactors to sort of make those proteins work. Mm, right. Actually, like I think we, we wrote about it in the immunity fix that uh, vitamin A is help, helps to buffer against vitamin D toxicity. So if you get your, enough vitamin A, then the potential for vitamin D toxicity is much higher and you're kind of safer in, in that regard. And I think it's the opposite way around as well, that if you get enough vitamin D, then your vitamin A toxicity is also higher. Correct. Yep. 100%. Right. Uh, so, um, and if you like to eat, uh, let's say, cod liver oil, then maybe have some liver with it <laughs> to uh, get the vitamin A. Absolutely. Yeah. That's good. Um, with some some people in the chat asked like, um, uh, so it's better to get vitamin D through the sun instead. Uh, what about liver or liver capsules? Liver liver isn't a, a great source of vitamin D. It's a great source for vitamin A. Um, but, but definitely will not get you to where most people need to be. Um, so, I mean, sunlight is, is obviously the best way because it's, it's giving you so much more benefits, right? You're getting the, the, um, the vitamin D in a different form, a more soluble form, right? The, the sulfur containing vitamin D, vitamin D sulfate, um, which is more freely diffusible into tissues. Um, and sunlight is what provides that form of vitamin D. Um, and then you're also getting right increases in nitric oxide. You're getting the infrared, the red light spectrum with sunlight. It's, it's setting your circadian rhythm. So um, you can still get sunlight in the winter. It's, it's wild. Like even stepping out, even on a cloudy day, it's fair. It's much brighter than inside. So like you can still, you're not going to get the vitamin D, um, but you can still get some vitamin D. I was out two days ago, no shirt, 32 degrees Fahrenheit. And I was, I was feeling that sun. And it, so it's just, you know, you just got to get out there sometimes if it's sunny, even in the winter. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Like it's uh, definitely much brighter outside. And uh, even if you don't get the, the vitamin D per se, you get uh, still the, uh, you know, circadian rhythm entrainment of uh, better sleep at night and just, you know, overall better health as a result of that. Right. Um, Donnie is asking, um, is it true that you need to eat, eat cholesterol to get vitamin D from the sun? Uh, I don't necessarily think you have to, um, you could be fasting and if you're getting sun, you're gonna, you're gonna make vitamin D. So no. Um, but I do think that, uh, getting cholesterol in the diet is important because obviously we do convert cholesterol in the body, but your liver can synthesize it. Right. But we do convert cholesterol to vitamin D and other hormones. So, uh, I guess the message is, is no, you don't necessarily have to eat cholesterol to form vitamin D because your body already makes it and you have the cholesterol to do that. But from an overall health perspective, we probably should be consuming foods that contain cholesterol. Right, right. Uh, what, what would be like a good, uh, let's say, amount, like, do you think that cholesterol is, uh, you know, all good or is it something that you still would want to be slightly cautious of in some moments? 
I, I don't. So I think oxidizing cholesterol can potentially be a problem. So I try not to scramble my eggs too often. Like at most I'll scramble my eggs twice a week, because if you think about it, um, there's been, there's been a lot of animal studies where if you, if you feed them oxidized cholesterol, then that's an issue. And so if you are scrambling the yolks, which have the cholesterol and have the linoleic acid that's susceptible to oxidation, that potentially could be a problem. I think your body takes that damage though. And if you're a healthy individual, we'll um, fix it rather quickly. But if, you, if you're probably constantly eating high doses of oxidized cholesterol, uh, such as um, scrambled eggs on a consistent basis, I think it may take its toll. Yeah, and uh, especially if you cook it like in uh, canola oil. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, exactly. That's going to be much more harmful for sure. Yeah, like yeah, and yeah, like uh, all these other foods as well, like bacon and things. Uh, if you cook them in the bad fats, then yeah, they're going to be oxidized and uh, definitely harmful. Right. Um, all right. Um, I, and that kind of coincides with the other side of the you know importance of uh, immunity that uh, your metabolic health is uh, very paramount. And uh, some people actually said in the chat that. Uh, Paul Saladino, the carnivore MD, he, he got COVID and uh, he said that like his uh, metabolic system is essentially enabling him to get away with it. And uh, it's because it is important to kind of determining how, how are you going to respond to any kind of a virus. Yeah, 100%. Um, exactly. Your nutrient status, your metabolic health, because, because it's, your, it's your own body that is sur surveying and trying to seek out this virus. And those immune cells, their, their function is directly determined by, you know, your blood glucose level, your insulin sensitivity, your nutrient status. So this stuff isn't really that complicated. It, you know, a healthy you is a healthy immune cell and, and you're gonna have better outcomes from any type of viral infection if you are overall metabolically more healthy. Yeah, for sure. Um... One question we got from uh, Instagram is that, um, should you stay on keto if you get Corona? Like, um, what, how would like maybe a ketosis and low carb affect your immune system? That's a good point. I mean, I think if it's, if you're, I guess it depends what your, where your baseline is and, and how you're doing your keto diet. Cause you can do a keto diet pretty bad and then you can do a keto diet really well. Um, so I think whole food keto diet is great. And it's, if that improves your blood glucose, your insulin sensitivity, that's a good idea. I think I'm starting to get a little more into um, like the, the metabolic acidosis effects of chronic ketosis, right? And like, because from an ancestral perspective, if, if carbohydrates were available, which they were in Africa, um, you're not going to be in a constant state of ketosis. And, you know, the research is really, is really interesting on um, metabolic acidosis. There's like a huge argument. Um, and a lot of people don't think that you, your body can actually become uh, more acidic through the foods that you eat. Um, but actually it absolutely can. It just doesn't show up in the blood. You actually increase the acidity of your interstitial fluid and within the cell. So I do think it's important to bring some type of bicarbonate to a carnivore diet. That's, that's the key that the carnivore diet is, increases the production of non-carbonic acids, which have to be excreted through the kidneys. You can't just breathe them out. And you actually start accumulating that acid. Um, once you start eating more than one, a diet that produces more than one milli equivalent of acid per kilogram of body weight. So essentially, but in most current, so that'd be like, if you're 70 kilograms, if you're eating a diet, that's producing more than 70 milli equivalents of acid, 
you will start accumulating acid in the body. And a typical carnivore diet is actually like 150 to 200 milliequivalents of acid. So it's much more than what your body is actually able to get rid of. So you simply just got to consume some type of uh, bicarbonate, whether mineral waters or um, some sort like spinach, things like that. Right. Yeah, like your bicarbonate you get from vegetables, but also, you know, waters and uh, like would sodium bicarbonate uh, apply here, like baking soda? Yeah, yeah. Essentially, that 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 is what it is. Um, that's one way to do it. I, I like to do to get bicarbonate through natural mineral waters because you're also getting the alkaline minerals as well, like the magnesium and calcium. But yeah, sodium bicarbonate tablets is another way to do it. Okay. Um, one off-topic question we had was like, what's your favorite Italian and Greek foods? <laughs> that's <laughs> that's a great question. Well, I'm not Greek, um, so I don't necessarily. I mean. Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't necessarily have a favorite Greek food, but, um, you know, Italian food. I mean, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of pasta. Everyone like, like in my family is like, you're Italian. You don't like pasta. Um, I really don't, I, I would say sauce probably just like sausage, sausage with sauce and peppers. Yeah. Like the chorizo sausage thing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh... Italian food is uh, tends to be pretty, you know, it's it's not like low carbon, it's not uh, low fat either, so it's kind of uh, both. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, what about like you know some pizzas or something like the junk food? <laughs> what would be like a good uh, junk Italian food that you like? Oh man. Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, if you want to call pizza Italian, um, I don't even think it originated in Italy, but yeah, uh, like a solid Italian like thin crust pizza. Yeah, I'll get down with that every now and then. <laughs> yeah, and you can and you can also do it like healthy way that uh, you maybe use like cauliflower crust or something. Yeah, you could, but it's it's not the same the cauliflower. But <laughs> <laughs> if you're gonna cheat, you know, you might as well cheat. Yeah, you have to use your imagination a little bit. <laughs> yeah, um, and maybe that kind of ties with intermittent fasting as well. Like, what do you think about you know fasting if you would where to get like some infection? Oh yeah, if you um, so I think. You know, the research is pretty clear that autophagy is probably most activated around 48 to 36 hours, but you don't want to fast when you're sick necessarily. Um, so it's sort of like, you know, the best data we have is that if you sort of want to reset the immune system, you know, fasting maybe two to three days every two to three months at the most may actually provide some benefits through autophagy and sort of breaking down old immune cells and replacing them. Um, so it's more of like a prophylactic strategy rather than oh i'm sick i should fast that's probably not what you want to do. yeah yeah i agree and your immune system would be like you know you know a slightly weaker state uh, if you were to go on a, like a longer fast um, because uh, your you know, immune cells and uh, you know immunity drops when you're fasting because of the stress and things so yeah it, it is more of like a pro pre preventative uh, measure and if you were to be get sick then i would focus more on just hydration uh, proper sleep, eating, you know, adequate amount of uh, food, and uh, yeah, maybe maybe like a little bit of intermittent fasting can be good, where you like maybe eat once or twice a day because you naturally wouldn't want to eat if you're like sick, uh, instead of like going for a long fast. Right. Um, and yeah, like I think uh, they actually did like some rat studies in in Yale, I, I believe, that where they uh, compared what's the effect of uh, like ketosis and fasting on a viral infection versus a bacterial infection and they saw that the bacterial infection was 
you know, uh, resolved better with the fasting and ketosis because of kind of starving out the bacteria. Whereas with the viral infection, uh, that was the opposite actually, that the, the so worse outcomes because of, you know, imposing this energy stress on the body. Right. Yeah, I do remember that. Mm -hmm. um, right. Uh, we had some question in the chat. Um, what's your favorite organ meat recipe? Mine is beef tripe in wine sauce. <laughs> Oh, nice. I really don't have a recipe. So I buy the blends. I buy um, it's 75% muscle meat and 25% liver and heart. And essentially, I just grill them into burgers. So no, no nothing crazy. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, e easy actually to kind of um, mix together like uh, liver with uh, beef and uh, get some mm -hmm. patties out of it. So you kind of, um, you know, trick, trick yourself into eating it and it doesn't really taste that much difference. Right. The, the one key thing I try to do is I try to use extra virgin olive oil when I cook, because so there is, you know, there's no, it's not like um, animal foods have a complete free pass, right? Like they're so great, like for nourishment, but when you cook animal foods, you oxidize arachidonic acid, you oxidize cholesterol, you create heterocyclic amines. So I do feel there should be some type of plant compound, whether it be, you know, picnogenol that you're taking with your food or whether you cook it in olive oil with some vinegar, some type of uh, compound um, spices to sort of offset that oxidation. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And yeah, it kind of protects against uh, the lipid peroxidation and things that happen if you were to do like cooking in a high temperature. And also like if you were to eat only like a very high muscle meat diet, then you would also get like too much iron and uh, that would be a problem right. in cardiovascular health and things. Well, that's, that's the thing too, right? So when you're cooking meat, um, red meat, it's, it's the, the iron that's combining with the linoleic acid that really creates, creates a bad storm too. And I know there's not a ton of linoleic acid, but there's still some, and then that's combining with the oxidized cholesterol and the oxidized arachidonic acid. Um, because remember it's not linoleic acid. Isn't the only omega six you're getting arachidonic acid too. And that can oxidize very easily too. So you got to protect that when you're cooking animal foods as well. Yeah. Uh, well, are there any like specifics that, um, have like a, what would be like a list maybe a few of these uh, beneficial things that can protect against that? So, so things like herbs and spices, rosemary, oregano are really good cinnamon and then your apple cider vinegar, um, red wine vinegars, when you're, when you're actually cooking will reduce the advanced glycation and product formation, um, extra virgin olive oil. So the polyphenols in, in olive oil help protect um, oxidation products as well. Those are the keys. And then really any type of plant polyphenol coffee is really good too at inhibiting those lipid peroxidation products from animal foods. Um, same things like pycnogenol, which is French maritime pine bark extract. That's something I take every day. So, you know, there's a bunch of things you can do, tons of hacks. Yeah, yeah, and uh, algae a lot of, or spirulina, I think that's on as yeah. well. Yeah, and glycine too. It's sort of like, uh, how do you biohack cooking your meat? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you write a whole book on that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's a, yeah, you can like take like the glycine powder as well, like to uh, balance the methionine to glycine ratio and uh, yeah. also. Mm -hmm. But would be like, a, are there like any ways to mess up like plant foods? <laughs> oh, uh, like uh, make plant foods more harmful? Yeah. So to speak, I think, well, if you cook plant foods and animal foods, um, 
you sort of reduce the bioavailability of B6 and you can actually create B6 antagonists, particularly with, with um, plant foods. So if you're, if you're eating, and it's good to cook plant foods though, in a way too. So if you're, um, if you're cooking most of your plant foods, it's also probably a decent idea to get at least some raw plant foods for the B6 or some type of other source of B6. So whether it be a green banana, which is a great source of bioavailable B6, that's one way you can mess up plant foods. The other way you can mess up plant foods is not cooking them, right? Um, like with cruciferous vegetables, if you overdo it and you don't cook it, you're, you get those goitrogens and inhibit iodine uptake and things like that. Hmm. Yeah, and I would imagine like if you overcook them, then they're also going to just destroy all the nutrients. <laughs> right, like garlic, right? You overcook it and all of a sudden the allicin, you're not forming it. And Yeah. What so, what what is this? what do you think about the garlic uh, in terms of immune system? That you know it does have very beneficial effects on just ant antibacterial effects. Yeah, I think um, there there's been some studies with aged garlic extract that seems to work well, um, and I do think that that allicin, which is the primary active ingredient in garlic, has a ton of benefits, well, not above and beyond just immune system function. So if you can if you can cook with garlic, I think it makes sense. You just don't want to overcook the garlic. Yeah, and I think uh, the kind of uh, go-to way to is to uh, crush it uh, first and let it sit for maybe like a few minutes so that the allicin gets you know formed, and uh, that then you slightly heat it, uh, but you don't want to yeah boil it or cook it. Right. Uh, what what other like um, some um, similar similar foods that uh, have like a beneficial effect on the immune system? So I think. Um... If you're looking at it from a, a nutrient boosting perspective, like how I build my diet is one in one to one and a half pounds of, of meat, typically red meat, three to six pastured eggs, and then a liver and heart some, somehow integrated into there. And then you get your omega-3s, either wild salmon, cod liver oil. And then um, I, I like to get my vitamin C through Camu Camu because you're getting um, more of a whole food source. And I try to do that twice a day. And then, um, you know, mineral waters for the magnesium and calcium. And then if you're looking at it from the perspective of if you have like a like a poor COVID case going on, right? Like, so not just like boosting the immune system, but like NRF2 activation, that would be things like your broccoli sprouts or broccoli sprout powder. Um, and then you would, you know, combining that with melatonin is the perfect NRF2 activation because uh, sulforaphane and, and plant compounds, how they boost NRF2 is inhibiting the inhibitor. So they just make your current levels of NRF2 more active. Whereas melatonin actually stimulates the transcription of NRF2 and actually boosts the level. So if you can do melatonin plus some type of plant compound um, to activate the NRF2, that's like the best synergistic way to increase your overall antioxidant enzymes. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, that the uh, NRF2 is also like involved, not, not only, or like it kind of goes to show that the melatonin is actually more uh, involved with the antioxidant defenses rather than just uh, sleep. Yes. So melatonin um, increases clock genes and, and increases something called BMOL1, which can um, activate the promoter region on NRF2 to increase its transcription. Most plant compounds can't do that. And then melatonin also directly inhibits nuclear factor kappa beta by being a CERT1 activator. 
And so that and, and as you know, and we discuss in the immunity effects, it's it's nuclear factor kappa beta that causes NLRP3 inflammasome activation. So you're getting a dual benefit with melatonin. You are increasing the transcription of NRF2, but you're also directly inhibiting NLRP3 inflammasomes through an, a nuclear factor kappa beta suppression via CERT1 activation. Wow, yeah. So like, uh, you know, of course, sleep would be the best way to kind of have like a natural rise in melatonin, but would you like then take a melatonin supplement like during the day or something? Yeah, there's like really intriguing evidence that there, there was a, a case series of 10 COVID pneumonia patients where they gave them 10 to 20 milligrams of melatonin four times a day. Wow. You probably don't want to do that chronically. Um, but in this acute situation, it seemed to, you know, there was no, no deaths in these COVID pneumonia patients and no one went to the ICU, whereas 20 to 40% of those similar cases that didn't get melatonin ended up either dying or, or on ICU. And there's been many studies that, that melatonin supplementation may reduce the risk of even testing positive um, for COVID-19. So there's these, they're, they're, they're interesting on melatonin, even with cancer prevention, or, or if you have cancer, excuse me, there's been a lot of studies that if you give high dose 10 to 20 milligrams at night, there's a lot of clinical clinicals showing improvement in mortality in numerous cancers. And there's even studies showing that melatonin, um, like prior to exercise can reduce muscle soreness and, and, um, you know, improve your ability to exercise the next day. So I think we're like, we, I think there's going to be a lot of um, new data coming out on how to sort of hack melatonin, like maybe um, increasing it sporadically um, in acute settings with higher doses um, could provide some benefits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so you like probably yeah, don't want to be taking it all the time because of, um, right. yeah, it can maybe like make you like drowsy or <laughs> make you fall very tired during the daytime because it is like a very, you know, it's the sleep hormone, darkness hormone. So it kind of makes you you know, lethargic or fatigued. Right, exactly. Yeah. So if you can get away with doing it more at night, that's better. But I think for acute, acute, really inflammatory situations, it, it seems to actually potentially be better to do it like four times a day. Mm -hmm. And uh, that would be only if you actually get like sick or something, not, not if you're mm -hmm. like not, not, not infected. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. And uh, what, what, what would be, what, what would the amounts 10, 10 milligrams. Yeah. So the, the study that uh, looked at the COVID-19 uh, pneumonia patients was 10 to 20 milligrams four times a day. Okay. So it was, so the total dose was 36 to 72 milligrams per day. That's, that's quite a lot. Like uh, regularly, if you were to take it for sleep, then you would take only like 0 .0 0 0.1 or 0 0.3 or up to like one milligram. <laughs> right. And that, and that go, well, the safety of melatonin is so good. Like there, I don't even know, you know, thought you'd have to take probably at least over a thousand milligrams of melatonin to have any type of real bad side effects. So super safe and, and kind of works like molecular hydrogen in that aspect that um, melatonin can freely cross into any cell. Um, same, same thing as molecular hydrogen. Um, but what, what's additionally unique about melatonin is there's these melatonin receptors, recept type one, type two, when you activate those, you increase, you directly increase uh, superoxide dismutase and other antioxidant enzymes as well. So it's, you know, it's so funny that we used to think taking antioxidants and high dose vitamins was your best antioxidant, but it's actually like, we're starting to find out it's these, these, these molecules and hormones like melatonin and molecular hydrogen that can activate 
your own endogenous antioxidant systems. And that's probably a better way to do it. Or you go into the sauna or you do cold therapy or things like that. And you shock your body through stress. And then that causes an increase in antioxidant defenses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a kind of different uh, viewpoint that if you were to take only like this uh, vitamin C in large amounts, then you're actually actually making your body weaker because of, uh, you know, relieving the stress, so to say. So like if you were to not exercise at all, then your body would be weaker because of not experiencing this hormesis. And uh, taking these antioxidants would also kind of create a similar effect that your body isn't experiencing any stress at all. Uh, so you need to, like a right. small amount of stress from like uh, exercise or heat um, or even like these different molecules to stimulate the body to start ramping up its own uh, own uh, antioxidant defenses. Exactly. And so that's why, you know, taking high dose um, vitamins and stuff like close to your workouts isn't the right move. But taking something like molecular hydrogen is different because it's selective and it really only inhibits the really bad oxidants um, like hydroxyl radicals which have no benefit in the body. So, and, and so it, it's like these selective antioxidants or these, these antioxidants that increase your own endogenous antioxidant systems is really the, are really the best ones. Mm, yeah. Uh, we have a question. Um, is seek kelp a good source for iodine? How many micrograms do you recommend per day? That's a good question. So um, the studies that I've looked at, like there's different, I don't think we know exactly which type. Some types are actually your own endogenous. Other types are not. I, I don't tend to rely on sea kelp or nori or things like that for iodine, you know, or, or almost any other nutrient. You really should rely on animal foods because the, the literature is very, yes, certain noris and certain sea kelps have a good bioavailability of iodine, but then others show that they don't. Whereas consistently animal studies always show iodine's at least 80% or higher bioavailable. Uh, so I don't, I wouldn't rely on sea kelp for all your iodine. Yeah. Yeah. Like you would, uh, get it, you know, mostly from uh, fish and, you know, seafood does have it like sea vegetables and, uh, things, but right. Yeah. So milk, milk, milk is good source of iodine, pastured eggs, good source. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, uh... Like, you know, the iodized salt is also pretty predominantly used, but that can also be, you may, you may, get, you may get too much iodine if you use it all the time. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, what are the best plant foods to supplement an otherwise carnivore diet with? I think you mentioned it already. Uh, spinach would be good. Uh, raisins or dates for, for not only boron, but also that the, they are the most alkaline producing foods. Uh, think, uh, other good plant foods. Well, you got to get some type of vitamin C, you know, like how do you, how do you get like an optimal intake of vitamin C on a carnivore diet? In my opinion, you can't. And I know, I know there's a huge debate. Well, you don't need as much. Yes, you do not need as much, but, um, you're still well below the optimal intake. So camu camu is how I do it. You can do acerola um, extracts or any type of high dose vitamin C powder. You don't even have to consume an actual food. You can just take a whole food powder. So, yeah. Yeah. I would also maybe just uh, maybe like green tea or uh, coffee uh, and uh, yeah, like some powder, maybe polyphenol powder, like the dark, dark berry powder, like cranberry powder or something you can get. Yeah. Well, the, and, and the, that's the thing too, you're going to be low on boron and manganese on a carnivore diet. 
right? So um, I'm trying to think what was the best carnivore. And there's a couple of fish that are decent, really mussels. Okay, if you're a carnivore diet, uh, you got to consume about three ounces of mussels essentially almost every single day. So that's really not um, doable for most people. So um, I get manganese through Ezekiel bread, like two slices, two to three slices of Ezekiel bread. And I have my RDA for manganese. Um, Brewer, Brewer's yeast is also, I think, pretty like a safe kind of. A it might be. Yeah. Brew, brew, brewer's yeast is definitely good for chromium. Um, and I, I need to start looking into Brewer's yeast. And uh, there's another wheat. What is it? A uh, brand. It's a wheat brand, I think are a pretty high source of vitamins. Hmm. Yeah. And some, yeah. Um, what do you think about caffeine? Do you, do you think that it is addictive, worsens regeneration, worsens sleep, creates chronic stress, is expensive and is, has withdrawal symptoms if you don't have access to it? <laughs> I think it depends completely on the person. Um, I think, you know, one or two cups of coffee uh, if you can tolerate it, I, I think there's actually probably more benefits than harm, especially if you can, if you can not consume it after maybe one o'clock, 1 PM, but if it is messing with your sleep, then don't, then don't drink it. Right. It's like, you know, take, take the dose that works for you. Yeah. Yeah. Like one, one to two cups is, yeah, should be fine. And I like, yeah, the addiction is uh, yeah, like how much you're drinking. Like if you're you're used to drinking three or four cups, then you probably will develop the caffeine uh, intolerance or caffeine tolerance that you need to kind of increase the dosage all the time. But if you keep it at like one to two cups all the time, then you won't build up this uh, tolerance either. Yeah, it's like drink, make sure you're drinking organic coffee because it can be contaminated with mycotoxins. So you can get around that by drinking organic. Um, you use it wisely, you know, you, you know, drinks, drink some with uh, your cooked animal foods uh, to reduce the lipid peroxidation. And coffee increases ferulic acid, which is a, a master antioxidant as well. So there's some benefits there. The acrylamide dose, we published a paper, uh, is not even close to being an, an issue. So you don't have to worry about acrylamide with coffee because it contains a, a million other compounds. So you can't just look, isolate the acrylamide dose. So I think um, the only issues, the primary issues that come with it is your tolerance. Is it causing you diarrhea? Is it making you jittery? Is it giving you palpitations? Is it messing up your sleep? So if you can fix the dose and get it down to a dose that's tolerable and avoids those side effects, I think you can reap a lot of the neuroprotective cardiovascular benefits of consuming organic coffee. Yeah, yeah. And there is actually quite a lot of you know, research about uh, coffee being uh, protective against liver cancer and uh, neurodegeneration and diabetes. And yeah, <laughs> if you get it in the right you know, moderate dose, then it's actually very good. Yeah, I agree. I think if there was a true harm with drinking coffee, you would see it in the prospect of studies and literally almost there's not a single disease state. I feel that drinking a moderate amount of coffee has not been associated with a lower risk of. Yeah. Um, but what about like, you know, minerals, like, uh, will it make you excrete more minerals because of, you know, urination or chelation? I've looked, I've actually looked a little bit into that. Um, and the, the largest excretion will be sodium and chloride. So salt, um, so you, so you gotta make sure, especially chloride, for some reason, it's, it's a tremendous chloride depleter about, about two times more chloride is lost than sodium. Um, but, but on average, you know, four cups of coffee will cause a half a teaspoon of salt loss in the urine. The B, the B vitamins don't really seem to be depleted for some reason. I looked at that. There's not good evidence that it depletes B vitamins. The, the one possible problem is if you are on a low calcium intake, it may lead to enough calcium loss where you could slowly become depleted. 
but you can offset that by just consuming more calcium. It does not deplete magnesium. Um, but through the loss of salt, you know, what's crazy is sodium and chloride move almost every single molecule in the body, whether it's an amino acid, glucose, um, it's, it's actually pretty wild. And taurine reabsorption actually follows sodium reabsorption in the kidney. So if you're spilling more salt out with coffee, you're probably reducing your taurine reabsorption. So I, I, I've been taking taurine more because of the coffee that I ingest and I can replace salt easily, but I, for, I, I'm not replacing the taurine that's likely lost. Okay. So uh, if you do drink coffee, then maybe drink a little bit more mineral water or like add a, add a little salt. Yes. More salt, more taurine. Um, and I'm a little nervous that it could, it could cause maybe some chromium loss. I'm not, I'm not sure about that, but, but as you know, if you lose chromium, it's a big deal because you, you only absorb 1%, um, in the diet. So if you lose one microgram, you got to consume a hundred micrograms to replace that loss. Hmm. Yeah. And, uh, what would be like a good foods for that to get like chromium? Animal foods. Typically, you know, most animal foods are good sources. Yeah. Well, and also the brewer's yeast was one of those. Yeah. The brewer's yeast too. It's true. Right. Um, what is your opinion on training fasted versus fed? How about taking only three grams of isolated leucine before to prevent muscle catabolism? Yeah. I mean, even better would be a full spectrum essential amino acid before working out like six to 12 grams is going to give you not only more energy, um, but it's also going to reduce the muscle soreness, muscle breakdown and increase muscle gains. Um, so, so not just leucine, I would, I would do um, a full spectrum essential amino acid, not, and you don't want to do just branch chain amino acids. Yeah. Um, that can actually make things worse because you're stimulating muscle protein synthesis, but you are now lacking the other essential amino acids to grow the muscle. So you can actually mess yourself up by just taking uh, BCAAs. Yeah, like uh, the taking leucine itself wouldn't be uh, that effective because you would stimulate mTOR and uh, muscle protein synthesis, but you wouldn't have like yeah, the building block. So the essential amino acids would be uh, covering the other ones uh, for that. And um, right. Yeah, like if you eat before working out, like if you're fed, then you don't really need to do that because you have, as long as you get like enough protein from your meal, so. Right, and then, I mean, in response to the fasted versus fed, um, if, you, if you're talking about fat burning, you're gonna burn more fat in a fasted state. Um, but if you're talking about high athletic performance, you, like there, you do want some type of slow releasing carbohydrate on board uh, because you deplete, you rapidly deplete muscle glycogen within minutes of explosive activity. And you can, if you have a slow releasing carbohydrate on board, you're gonna, you're gonna instantly replace the 33% loss that happens within minutes of, of them. And so, you know, capping off your muscle glycogen is going to increase your explosiveness, reduce fatigue during a competitive event. So mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's smart to, to compete in a competitive explosive event, um, fasted. Right. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I agree. Like your performance will always be worse uh, if you're like a facet versus if you have, you know, eaten something. Uh, so yeah, like if you like don't want to actually eat a meal before uh, training, then having some maybe like a protein shake or 
yeah, like some carbs uh, in that maybe like um, the lower glycemic ones are like D-ribose or something uh, mm. instead of like pure glucose, then that would be like a good way to maintain like this uh, high explosive performance uh, without going catabolic and without uh, you know being weaker. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, how do you guys do to achieve optimal mental focus? <laughs> I think it starts, starts with nutrition, right? Good sleep, nutrition, exercise, that's going to get your mental uh, health, you know, optimized. And then, you know, uh, have a goal, figure out who you want to be in life, like, and pursue it and, and really stick to um, who, who you want to be and, and don't doubt yourself, right? Like the negative thoughts, like that kills you. You just got to conquer your own mindset. It's like, like, you know, mindset's a half the battle. Yeah. Yeah, like if you do something that you hate or uh, something that doesn't motivate you, then yeah, it's hard to be focused. Um, uh, whereas if you enjoy it, then it's easier. But at the same time, you like you also have to have like some discipline and this willpower thing that uh, initially everything is going to be hard if you're not used to doing it, and it's your mind will begin to wander. But if you grind it through like initially or you stay disciplined and consistent, then uh, you build this habit of mental habit of uh, you know being able to focus uh, when you when you need to. So kind of requires both both sides that it's going to suck sometimes but you have to kind of you know uh, suck it up a little bit and uh, get through it exactly if you just fully commit to something then you're going to conquer your mindset it's it's like just fully commit if it's if it's who you want to be if it's your passion just don't don't just fully commit to it and then all of a sudden things that you thought were impossible become easy yeah yeah and of course, uh, like the diet and sleep are very, really important. Like I, I personally like don't want to be um, dependent of like any like a uh, nootropic or uh, caffeine or something to keep me motivated or keep me uh, focused. Like I want to be right. able to like, just turn it on uh, like uh, whenever I need to. And that and that's like a ment men it's a mental skill that you uh, need to develop. It's like a muscle that you train all the time. Right. Um, let's take some questions. Um, Let's see. Keto suppressed my appetite, making me barely eat. I eat only when hungry, which is very little, even less than my recommended calorie intake. Should I force myself to eat so that I get my calorie intake? That's a good question. Well, we can't give medical advice because we don't know your situation um, per se, but I will say it sounds like your body is doing what it's supposed to, right? And so that's the kind of, that's the mindset I try to tell people when it comes to a lot of people think they should be counting calories or, um, you know, what you, you don't count how many glasses of water you consume. Your body tells you you're thirsty. You listen to that. And so why would you veer from that type of sick body signaling when it comes to food intake? Why would you start calorie counting, right? And not going with your own hunger signals. And so, if you're eating whole foods, those signals typically align and will correct you to eat the appropriate amount of foods. When you start veering to the junk foods, now you can't trust your hunger single signals because you're, you're starting to mess up your own physiology and your hormones. Yeah. Yeah. And I think first you have to know what's, what are you, what is your goal? Uh, do you want to gain weight or do you want to lose weight? And uh, what is your current body composition as well? Like if you're all right, then not being hungry can be a good thing because you'll just naturally under eat. Uh, whereas if you're underweight, then uh, you may want to eat more just because of to, you know, increase your body weight. Um, 
but uh, if you are like having if you want to gain weight or you don't want to lose any more weight then just eating higher higher uh, calorie dense foods um, is, is easy uh, especially on keto like you have you know fat is very calorie dense and it's easier to eat the surplus of calories if you're eating like you know butter or steak or bacon or things which are very very, very high high in calories compared to like you know vegetables right uh let's take a question um what's the perfect oh no that's we were already asked about the carnivore foods um does it make a difference whether you take the essential amino acids as once or can I drink it throughout in an hour during the workout? Does it have the same anti-catabolic effect? So uh, you want to, so essential amino acids should be taken at a dose of around six to 12 grams, about 20 to 30 minutes prior to exercise. Hmm. Yeah. But you can also take it during the workout. Like um, I personally take it uh, during the workout uh, that uh, I start, uh, I start drinking it while I start working out and uh, kind of carry through the entire workout. But it, I think it is probably not going to matter uh, that much. Um, we have a super chat who says, thank you, Dr. James, Seam and Beat. I just don't, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> uh, one, one, uh, question off so maybe a little bit off topic but um what do you know like um anything about eczema or uh, some skin conditions what would be some condition uh, causes for that i haven't i haven't researched a ton on eczema i do know there's some decent data on gla which is um gamma linoleic acid uh, and things like evening primrose oil uh, that may help sometimes these these eczema cases are a lack of oils um you know, in the skin, in the structure of the skin starts breaking down, it could be more autoimmune. I think, I think it, there's a whole spectrum when it comes to these skin disorders. I mean, it comes, it's very simple for a lot of these things. So it comes down to just like getting rid of the junk, eating healthy foods, and then, you know, maybe there's a few supplements that could potentially help or topicals. Yeah. I think, yeah, like you first have to uh, look at uh, the yeah, like the basal immune system, uh, because, you know, eczema it is essentially like an autoimmune condition and uh, like a irritation. So uh, kind of trying to calm down, you know, the overactive immune system uh, with like anti-inflammatories and uh, these different um, like NLRP3 inflammasomes inhibitors and uh, like maybe like polyphenols and uh, these other plants can be uh, useful for that. Yeah. But of course, like food intolerances, if you're like allergic to dairy, then you probably shouldn't want to right. consume that. Mm. Uh, maybe, maybe let's uh, a little bit cover a bit about magnesium as well uh, because you, you like <laughs> you talk a lot about magnesium and like how would be uh, maybe best ways to ensure that you get adequate amounts of magnesium yeah most people in the united states are lacking magnesium for two primary reasons they have high levels of insulin causing it to spill in the urine they have insulin resistance so they can't get it into the cell and they have inflammation so they're burning through their magnesium so essentially just fixing your disease state which is taxing your magnesium status and then uh, damage to the intestine you're eating inflammatory foods and you're not absorbing magnesium as well so really just fixing your own diet is going to fix the inflammation and the insulin resistance. And now your need for magnesium will drop tremendously. So I think that's like the first thing. And once you, once you fix that, uh, I like magnesium waters cause it's already ionic. It's, it's the highest bioavailability once it's already dissolved. 
And, you know, you don't want to fully rely on just plant sources of magnesium because of the, uh, the phytates and, you know, it's not as bioavailable. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, actually like the, it's, you know, it's hard to get enough magnesium from just foods. Uh, so because it's, uh, depleted from the soil as well as the other like binders and uh, things that prevent the absorption. So maybe, yeah, like drinking mineral waters is probably the best or the most bioavailable way of getting it besides maybe like an IV or something. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is animal foods don't have a typically huge amount of magnesium and there's actually some data that, uh, the fats, the dietary fat forms, um, magnesium soaps and you don't absorb magnesium that well on a fairly high fat diet. And so you have a high carb diet, which taxes your magnesium status. You have a high fat diet that taxes your magnesium status and high protein is going to tax magnesium because when you're eating more protein, you need more magnesium to sort of, you know, utilize it. And so it's like all three sort of tax it. And so it's almost like you, because our foods are now more depleted, plants are about 30 to 40% lower. Animal foods are about 15 to 20% lower. You, most people need to have some type of exogenous source beyond just diet. Mm, yeah. Yeah. How, how would you go about like, uh, you know, trying to like, what are we like the way out of the uh, soil depletion, so to say, like, uh, it's probably not going to be sustainable in terms of if people are getting sick because of the nutrient deficiencies, um, then uh, and, and the food is lower in those nutrients, then uh, what is what is the solution? <laughs> yeah, so re regenerative farming is the solution. It's really it's something called um, adaptive multi paddock grazing. And so a lot of grass fed um, you know, farms, let's, let's call it, uh, do, do it wrong and inappropriately. They have one giant patch of land. They let the cattle graze and decimate the whole area. Um, the way to do it is you have multiple paddocks that they, that you don't decimate. You, you let them graze a little bit and they go to the next one. That way you never, you don't get the soil erosion. You don't get the plant decimation. You don't get the water runoff and the, and the mineral runoff from the soil. And so if you, the studies show that if you, um, look at, uh, you know, meat that is being produced from uh, an adaptive multi-paddock farming, it's actually net negative for every pound of flesh produced. It's minus 6.15 or 6.6 .6 pounds of carbon negative because the soil is so much better on a regenerative multi-adaptive, you know, farm. Um, it just soaks up all the carbon. Nice. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's the mono monocropping. Uh, yeah. It tends to be really bad. <laughs> For the environment. Yeah, so, yeah, it does. And so the soil is what gives all the nutrients to the plants, which then gives more nutrients to the animal food. So, so the regenerative farming using that type of farming method and the multiple paddocks is going to create uh, much more nutrient dense plant foods and, and also animal foods that are grazing from those pastures. Yeah. Uh, we have a question from Space 99 like, are biofilms in intestinal tract causing disease? What was the question on the, on biofilms? Yeah, like what? Yeah, like how do they affect health and disease? Yeah, I think there um, there's some research that biofilms essentially right you you have this right like bacteria just don't freely f float around and they form like these biofilms these giant large patches of bacteria and there's some data that um, people are infected with these biofilms and it's not just there could be yeast too and, and 
there's things like uh, potentially like oil of oregano that can help break those up. If, if you're suffering from symptoms and you don't know what's going on and your doctor is thinking it's like a biofilm, there are sort of like these biofilm breakers. Um, and I do, I do know that oregano oil is, is one of those. Mm, yeah. So yeah, just the comes down to like the gut health and uh, like the balance between the, you know, quote unquote, good bacteria and the bad bacteria. And uh, yeah, like some an natural antibacterials can prevent you know the proper proliferation of these uh you know or the bad but bad bacteria yeah and it's so hard it's very hard to kill a biofilm even with like antibiotics because yeah. it's just so existent so protected yeah and i actually think like the stress like even like fasting or things uh they can actually you know enable the biofilm to survive for longer because of you know the stress that you kind of uh, they they perceive the stress and therefore just uh, fortify their defenses. So it's a very hard thing. So yeah, they'll right. prob probably need to yeah consult with uh, like a professional and uh, yeah like maybe oregano oil, uh, maybe like garlic maybe <laughs> or something. They can also have like antibacterial effects. Mm -hmm. uh, all right, I think uh, we'll start wrapping up as well. So it's been a near an hour. Uh, well, and yeah, what's 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 coming next with you? What are you up to now? Nothing much, really. Um, you know, uh, you and I are probably going to be putting out a book soon on minerals. Besides that, I don't, I don't really have anything else going on. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's uh, a lot of writing. <laughs> yeah, it's good though. It's um, it's something that I know a lot of people have wanted uh, us to do. So I think um, there's going to be a lot of learning in that book. That's for sure. Yeah, it's a pretty long one as well. Much, much longer than uh, the previous ones. So pretty in depth. Yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe we'll have maybe we'll hit three thousand references this time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>